welcome to Covenant Conversations episode number 16. In the past few weeks, issuance has increased substantially. ThyssenKrupp launched a 7 billion plus funding package for its buyout by Advent and Sinven. It had one of the most aggressive covenant packages we have ever seen. There was an uproar and significant covenant changes during the roadshow. Against that backdrop, Today, we talk about investors' risky appetite for loose covenants in European leveraged finance and whether it has changed since the onset of the coronavirus crisis. I, Shweta Rao, the head of Reorg's Covenant Offering in Europe, am your host today and have the pleasure of speaking with Musinich's Senan Kiran. Welcome, Senan. We are so pleased that you could join us on our Covenant Conversations podcast today. In the beginning of the year, European bond issuance was thick and fast and included many aggressive terms and pushback was rare. Then came coronavirus, which chilled issuance for many months. The market seems to be opening up now and there is an appetite for deals, which had been agreed pre-COVID, such as Tyson's LBO financing. When you are evaluating an investment in the primary market, how important are covenants in your investment decision and what are the covenant risks you focus on? Hello, Shweta. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Sure. I mean, um, as you say, the market opened uh, uh, up quite a bit in the European high yield space. And Covenants has always been uh, a major focus during our investment analysis and continues to be so in these days as well. Uh, we focus on uh, all the covenants, I have to say, but uh, the major ones where we think could be detrimental um, to the credit health would be restricted payment basket, incremental debt, asset disposal covenants. So any covenant that gives flexibility to the issuer to take out value from the company. Then we would also focus on, depending on where we are in the structure, whether priming is an issue or not. Right. And has your risk appetite for loose covenants changed in the past few months with, you know, the onset of the crisis and so much stress and distress that we are seeing nowadays? I have to say that we have been focused on covenants uh, throughout. Um, I've been in this industry for more than 15 years and from day one covenants have been very important in our investment decision and continues to be so. But obviously as the covenants became looser in the recent times, uh, we pay even more attention to the flexibilities that are in the definitions or in the certain carve-outs. Right. And that's, I mean, it's so nice to have investors who pay attention to covenants and are vigilant on what flexibilities are built in there. Um, we heard anecdotally that um, some investors would have walked away from Tyson's deal because the covenants were so aggressive. But on the other hand, we also heard that some investors thought it was such a good credit that the you know, covenants really didn't move the needle for them. So in what circumstances would you walk away from a deal because of its covenants? So it's, I guess, it's never black and white. I always say credit analysis is more of an art than science. So mm. you have to consider, like you mentioned, 
all the different aspects of credit analysis, including covenants, when you um, come to your investment decision, and covenants is an important part of it. So when we look at deals, we look at the flexibilities the covenants offer and try to uh, estimate the impact these loose covenants might have on the credit quality in the future if these flexibilities are um, are utilized and in what circumstances these flexibilities can be utilized. And uh, by trying to incorporate that into our analysis, we come to an investment decision and judge whether the pricing on that investment, uh, in, on that notes that are offered, compensates for that risk or not. That's really interesting. Has the market evolved any kind of metric for pricing in covenant risk? Or is it more of an art than a science, as you just alluded to? I would say the latter. And it's it's a function of how strong the markets are, right? Yeah. So um, in bull markets, maybe a, it might be very suboptimal, but still the deals get done. But in bear markets, the pushback on covenants would uh, work and the pricing might try to incorporate those flexibilities. In the past, we have seen cases for both, uh, mm -hmm. but it's a, it's a very direct function of the market, I would say. Going back to your point about how to calculate the amount of flexibility that a covenant package have, and you made reference to priming debt, uh, incremental diluted debt, a restricted payment capacity. All of that is nowadays, uh, in a way, quite heavily centered on the definition of EBITDA because, you know, the flexibility might have be based on EBITDA grower or might be coming out of a ratio such as a leverage ratio. We've recently seen uh, in the last reporting cycle, the one that just went past, the number of issuers coming to market and in their financial reports, including a COVID-19 add back to uh, EBITDA, either for losses incurred because of the coronavirus or expenses incurred because of the virus. Yeah. And then some companies we also saw, also in the US, but also uh, over here, that they, instead of uh, using their actual EBITDA, they used the redeemed EBITDA or historic EBITDA for financial covenant right. testing purposes. So what is your view on these um, COVID-19 related EBITDA adjustments? And is it justified as a temporary measure or is there a better measure which really should be adopted instead of uh, an EBITDA or a historic EBITDA? Yeah, yeah. Fair question. Obviously, it's been discussed about a lot, a lot these days. Um, before that, uh, can I just say, in the good old days, where <laughs> everything, <laughs> yes, where where everything was a, a bit more straightforward, there was uh, only one uh, um, interest coverage, uh, one ratio that was included in the covenants, and uh, at the at the time, I'm talking like 10 years back, mm -hmm. uh, we would always ask the management uh, about that interest coverage, if they were doing acquisitions, so on and so forth. So the EBITDA was again defined slightly different to the reported one, but it was never that much far off. 
to right. the reported one. But now well, it's impossible, absolutely impossible to know what that number is that's um, defined under the covenants. So only be dark. Um, uh, I, I, I think it's somewhere in between. So I don't think it's right to use uh, full year 19 EBITDA levels for the calculation of these covenants. Mm -hmm. But then again, I don't think it's also right to uh, use Q2 uh, times four kind of levels either. It probably will be somewhere in between. Obviously, it depends on uh, what industry the company is, so on and so forth. But we need to make an estimation of a normalized level of EBITDA, which will fall in between these two numbers. I personally do not believe we will go back to 2009 level EBITDA levels in the near future. And I also personally do not believe Q2 is a normalized environment either. So uh, what would be very helpful from the um, from the uh, for the issuers from the company side is to give us an estimation uh, to their abilities, obviously, when everything is so uncertain, to give us a more normalized, whatever the norm will be for the next two years or so, would be the most helpful, I would say. And I don't think it's, it's either one of these metrics are correct to use for the near future. So the way forward could also be enhanced reporting where the company Absolutely. provides you more frequent information on how it's weathering the storm and how its numbers are changing. Absolutely. I mean, come April, right? Last year, this past April, everything happened so suddenly. Uh, you had companies that were under full lockdown with zero revenues. My expectation would be that that won't be repeated. But then mm -hmm. again, on the cost side, you had companies that were getting these government um, help uh, schemes that probably won't be there forever either. So what would be helpful for, for investors if the management teams can provide us with a more normalized level of activity and a more normalized level of cost basis going forward? Because they are adjusting their cost basis when it comes to their fixed cost basis, uh, not only by this help they are getting, but by also reducing their cost base by laying people off or whatever measures they are taking. So it would be very helpful for investors to see what the new normal looks like. Yes, and I suppose the question in my mind would be, when does the new normal start? Are we already <laughs> in the new normal? <laughs> Is it going to come next yeah. year? You know? yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. These are unprecedented times and it's very hard to uh, foresee what will happen next. But uh, I would, I would um, uh, expect management teams to be transparent and give as much information as possible. And everybody, depending on their you know, uh, thoughts about the future can incorporate that into their um, forecasts. Yes. And, um, you know, it's one thing to add back um, coronavirus related, add back to your reported numbers. And, you know, there is perhaps some justification saying it's a one-off cost perhaps and, you know, will not get repeated in the future, though that is also uncertain. But the other is to then use that inflated EBITDA number for calculating your covenant capacities, which is an entirely different thing in a way. 
And, you know, we had a couple of issuers we spoke to and they confirmed that like Sursa, which said that even though they have added um, uh, some costs back for their reporting numbers, they would not include the inflated yeah. EBITDA figure for their covenant yeah. capacities, which I think is the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah, uh, e- exactly. Like, uh, so for wh- whoever was in the, uh, had a bond outstanding already in the markets, uh, before COVID, that's already done, right, Shweta? Whatever yeah. the covenants are, they are there. It's a legal contract between the issuer and the investors. And if we gave them the flexibility beforehand, they will use it. If we didn't, they will not be able to use this EBITDA number under the covenants. And that's that. What probably is more important going forward, if we were going to, we, we are going to give this flexibility to issuers or not. Um, and on the, probably on the maintenance covenant side of things, again, that is a contract between the issuer and the lenders, whether loans or banks, and there they ask for waivers. And uh, the lenders, uh, assuming, I'm guessing that this is a temporary phase, uh, allowed for most of the companies to waive the covenants or gave them holidays for a year uh, uh, or a bit less uh, or reset the levels. So for the bonds for um, incurrence covenants, whatever is in the prospectuses are already there and there's nothing we can do about that. So companies, if they have the capability and the flexibility to use any kind of adjusted EBITDA, whether it's COVID-related or not, they, they might very well use them. But if they are not allowed, there's no way they can use them. Exactly. It's interesting you bring that up because um, Matalan went out and uh, got consent from its bondholders. It wanted to increase the size of its super senior debt basket to a mm-hmm. of some government funding. And one of the conditions in that consent was that they would not be adding uh, coronavirus related costs and losses to the EBITDA. So that's act the bondholders have actually uh, prohibited them from using that specific ad back. Right, so some, right, some, right. something for investors to keep in mind when and if a company comes to them for a consent for you know raising liquidity or for any other reason, waiving a default as the case may be. So delving a little more down into capacity calculations and also alluding to what you mentioned earlier about priming risk and uh, value leakage. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been an interesting time, definitely, because a lot of companies are becoming unexpectedly stressed and are evaluating their options under their covenants to raise mm-hmm. priming, priming debt. And yeah. um, uh, the analysis that we do and, you know, we in Reorg have lawyers and credit analysts working side by side, looking at documents and financial reports to work out how much priming debt capacity a company has. We we spend hours poring over both sets of documents, and sometimes we get really frustrated because we just don't have all the information that we need to make a hundred percent accurate computation because the management has not shared that information. Right, with bondholders. So I know that this is something that you've been uh, spending a lot of time on, on the lack of disclosure when it comes to covenant capacities uh, in your uh, work with Alpha. Can you tell us a little more about that? Of course. So 
Um, under Alpha, we have several subcommittees, one of which is Disclosure and Transparency Com Committee and uh, one of the co-chairs. And uh, we have been doing a lot of work on uh, different, different um, subjects uh, to enhance and improve the transparency in the market from issuers uh, and uh, also from accounting perspective, so on and so forth. So one of the projects we have been working on is um, the Covenant questionnaire uh, that is designed mainly for the uh, primary issuance where we try to understand and get to the bottom of what these uh, calculations look like and what the numbers are. Uh, we have been actively talking to the syndicate teams in major banks uh, that help issuers come to the market to understand if this information could potentially be provided to the investors and under what circumstances. So uh, we had different levels of response from different banks and it's a project that's still ongoing but I think everybody would agree that it's quite difficult to calculate these uh, baskets um, from uh, day one baskets which you reorg has as you mentioned is doing a lot of work on uh, but it's something that we want to improve in terms of transparency when it comes to such calculations yeah, that would be great. And one area, if I am sure you're already thinking about that, but one area that would really benefit everyone is IFRS 16 and how it, whether, yeah. whether covenants apply it or not, if they apply it, do they apply it consistently? And that's if they right, do, that's right. And if, yeah, if they don't apply it, and they use pre-IFRS 16 numbers, then issuers could perhaps provide those pre-IFRS 16 numbers to allow people to calculate capacities. Have, have you been thinking about this issue as well? Yes, of course. And it's uh, one, of, one of the questions in our questionnaire. And uh, obviously, this uh, came into effect in January 2019. And uh, some companies uh, has been very good with the disclosure. They would strip out the impact, give it to us um, separately on debt and also on EBITDA. And uh, I'm, I, from what I heard, um, some of the companies continued reporting on pre-IFRS 16 changes uh, when it came to their maintenance covenants for a year or so. But uh, slowly, I think everybody is incorporating the impact of IRS 16 into their numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I think what's very important is to be consistent and uh, transparent. So, like I said, if you give the investors the impact on that, the impact on EBITDA, and when you calculate your leverage metrics, you again incorporate the impacts both in the debt and EBITDA, I think everybody is fine with that. The problem is when it's applied inconsistently, where you would incorporate the impact on EBITDA, which is a positive impact, but leave it out on the debt figure, that's obviously is not very consistent and uh, uh, is not accurate, I have to say. So you uh, have your cake and eat it too. 
Yes, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> it basically with this creative um, documentary adjustments, you're just taking the covenant number or the covenant ratio even further away from what it is in reality. Absolutely. 100%. I mean, IFRS 16 is a standard that you have to report under, right? And uh, you have those numbers. And if you choose to use the impact as you like, however it would benefit you, that's not accurate. And that's not really presenting the reality. Exactly. Exactly right. It's always helpful to build awareness and shed more light on what issues investors are facing when it comes to actually applying covenants. And, you know, that that application of covenants has become so important now, more so than ever, especially when the market is in stress and issuers will try to find creative ways out of um, yeah. the troubled world they are in. Exactly. And it's a, it's a, it's a, fine balance right because uh, this is very unprecedented you have companies that are fighting for survival and mm. uh, if you know priming that means this company survives and uh, your whatever your level of uh, debt you're invested in um, is not impaired um, that that's fine i guess like what is the trick here is to see how these covenants are used, how these flexibilities are used. And uh, always the case would be, in my opinion, that even the company doesn't have that flexibility, uh, so they can use it as and when they like. If it means it's the survival of the company, investors would always be open to consider covenant waivers or changes, consents, so on and so forth. I think the intention of how those covenants are used is what makes the difference here. Absolutely. And as you will well know that Olympic Entertainment transferred some assets, uh, which they say were cash gener uh, burning assets and which their bondholders say were the crown jewel assets out of the credit group and into the hands of shareholders. And they haven't done that transfer to raise liquidity or anything, nothing of that sort. So, you know, we have to be even more vigilant and to see, like you rightly say, what is the intention behind the use in an unexpected way. Yes, I mean, even with the primary issuance, we, we will come across some uh, flexibilities that are being asked for under the covenants that are uh, not within the norm. And when we ask the uh, management teams or the sponsors, What's the intention of having that kind of flexibility in the bond prospectus? They almost always say, oh, we will never use that. But what, I, what doesn't make sense is if it's never going to be used, why it's in there in the first place? Well, that's a million dollar question leading on very nicely to um, the last question of our podcast, which is involves a little bit of crystal ball gazing from your end. How do you think uh, at a general sort of economic financial level, the world looks like going forward, let's say for the next six months to one year? And specifically, do you think that this crisis will result in the pendulum of covenants swinging back to a more balanced position? Because in the last 
few years, covenants have just deteriorated. They've only gone one day and that, that is down. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's time for covenant protection for investors to, to be enhanced and to be bought back to a more balanced position. Yeah. So what, what do you think is going to happen? So um, I had really high hopes that uh, the, the new normal would bring covenants more into attention and what the companies were able to do with them. Uh, investors would pay more attention to it. Uh, but I was proven wrong with the couple of examples uh, in the primary market. Um, and uh, we have to understand that uh, the pushback on covenants are driven or the lack of it are driven by many, many factors. One mm -hmm. is, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, is the other factors incorporated in the credit analysis as to the business and how strong the company is, so on and so forth. But the other aspect is also the uh, market dynamics, uh, where if the, uh, the asset class is having a lot of inflows in, if it's a bull market, so on and so forth. So under the current circumstances, it seems like uh, this again won't be uh, uh, waking up for the European high yield market to push back on covenants for one reason or another, it seems like, and it's a bit disappointing. Uh, but if things change and if economy deteriorates further, if the asset class you know, loses assets, so there isn't so much cash to put to work. And if the issuers mm -hmm. have to come to the market, that's another thing, right? Some issuers, it was opportunistic and they were, if we can't get what we want, whether pricing or covenant wise, we will not print it. Some had to print, but still they mm. were able to get the flexibilities under the covenants. So uh, for now, it doesn't seem to be the case that the pushback is strong enough to make any changes um, to the uh, flexibilities that are being asked for under the covenants. So perhaps at the moment, it's always good to be informed of the flexibilities that are hidden or sometimes uh, not so hidden, but, you know, clearly, obviously available in the covenant package and, you know, just be informed of what can happen. Exactly. And, and the investors can make their own uh, calls and decisions uh, based on that information if they think that the flexibilities uh, that are under the covenants are priced in the market, sorry, in the price, and they are happy to uh, invest under those covenants, that, that's, that's totally understandable. Uh, exactly. And if they do not want to invest uh, because the flexibilities are not in the price and it could be detrimental to the cre credit quality, especially uh, given that the uh, economies are expecting a slowdown uh, mm. in the GDP growth, that's fine as well. I think the bottom line with everything uh, in this market is information flow and transparency. Exactly right. And that's what we at Reorg try and provide to the market information flow and increased transparency on the documents that uh, issuers put out, be it uh, offering memorandum, loan documents or yeah. financial reports. Yeah. 
Thank you so much, Sinan. That was so helpful. It was such a pleasure to speak to you. I wish I could keep speaking to you for a few more hours. <laughs> but I'm sure you have many, many busy, many, many important things to do. Um, but this, this was really great. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. And I also enjoyed talking to you.